service uh, right here where we're meeting. <clears throat> and uh, sundown is at 8.12, so if we could plan to be here and seated and be here and ready by 8 o'clock, that would be good. <laughs> you across the country will have to translate the sundown time based on where you are. Uh, but here it's at 8.12, so we'll we'll be here by 8 and start shortly after sundown. So that's this coming Wednesday in the evening. And for the rest of the week, <coughs> I'll just announce this. We have a, I passed out a schedule here, but some of you will be wanting to tune in uh, wherever you may be across the country. On Thursday... Wait a minute, I must have got the dates wrong here. Anyway, Passover's Wednesday night. Thursday, uh, we'll have a service at 1 o'clock with a potluck. And Friday, 7 o'clock in the evening. Uh, and then on the Sabbath, we'll have 1 o'clock and a potluck. And on Sunday, 7 o'clock. Monday, 7 o'clock. Tuesday, 7 o'clock. And then... On the holy day, uh, Wednesday, we'll have a one o'clock service with a potluck. I cut it back from two services on the on the holy day and the Sabbath during this uh, time, <coughs> partly because we're small, but that's not the main thing. I think it's mainly because we're old. <laughs> I I had it I had it with the two services like we normally have, and I handed a schedule to Marla, and she says. She says, you think we should cut this back to one service on, on a day? She says, one, and I'm about worn out because of her health issues. And, and some here are pushing their 70s, 80s, and 90s pretty hard. So uh, I just decided for Passover at least we'd cut it back to one service a day. So, yeah, notice on the service I put Wednesday the 19th as the date of the Passover. That's the that's the twentieth, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, that's where I messed it up. I should have had twentieth there, Wednesday the twentieth. It's just coming Wednesday in any case. And then the rest of the date should be correct. All right. Well, let's go back into the book of John again. <clears throat> you may notice that John spends a great deal of time in his epistle here uh, really trying to explain who Christ is and what, what he was doing and uh, that he was from God. Uh, that was a major hurdle to accomplish because nearly everyone was against him. <clears throat> we'll find here that uh, when John or when Christ pushed the issue, uh, there was a rebellion. We'll get to that before the day's over, I think. But uh, John approaches it from uh, very much about the person of Christ and his purposes here, where the others' gospels deal more with events in a way than and John is more into this other side of it. So in chapter 6, where we left off last time, after these things, 
uh, Emmanuel went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. I'm I'm going to do a study. Maybe I'll get to it this afternoon. I, I was thinking about it this morning a little bit, but didn't have time. But to coordinate from the Scriptures uh, and with the Greek words even, uh, Galilee and uh, Tiberias, Capernaum, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Nazareth, and uh, all of those cities that Christ has spoken of going to, where he was born and all that, and see, if I can see a pattern there that simply doesn't fit the Middle East, and I'm pretty sure I will, because over there the Sea of Galilee is about, what, 60 miles north or something like that of Jerusalem, which would be a three days journey, and I've already mentioned that many times. If they had to bring fish from the Mediterranean or fish from Galilee, the only real, really two places there you can truly fish, uh, your fish would be three days old by the time you got to Jerusalem and there were no ice. So uh, the fishing had to be close to Jerusalem as we see it is with the hinder and the form, form in the hinder sea where I think the true Jerusalem is. But uh, Christ called his disciples who were fishermen. Did he go 60 miles north from Jerusalem to to find fishermen? Uh be an interesting study anyway to see what I can put together and how how those areas fit together. Anyway, that's just a side issue. <clears throat> and a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. So miracles, healings were one of the ways that he showed who he was. And it was the thing probably the primary issue that caused people to follow it and to see healings and hopefully to be healed. Uh, his teachings uh, didn't impress them too much, but the healings did. And he wanted to establish who he was. Anyway, in verse 3, Emmanuel went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. So this is just prior to Passover. Uh, and when Emmanuel then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come to him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? So Passover was near, and he's going to establish here in this context who he was. And I don't know that he always did ask, How are we going to feed all these people? Uh, people followed him everywhere he went. Uh, did he always feed them? Uh, probably not. But in this particular case, he had a reason to feed them. He had a reason to show who he was, and particularly just before Passover, because obviously he was to become the Passover, and his life, his body, his blood are very, very important to the whole plan of salvation, so this miracle of bread and fishes came just prior to Passover. The timing is exquisite to influence, I mean, to emphasize who he was. <clears throat> anyway, he saw them coming and asked Philip, how are we going to feed these people? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. So he makes it clear he was going to prove who he was by what happened here regarding the bread and the food. So Philip answered him, 
200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. Um, thousands of people were showing up, so what they had in the treasury there uh, wasn't going to handle that. Now, verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here which has five barley loaves and two small fishes. Well, what are they among so many? So they were looking around saying, well, he asked us how we're going to feed these people. The only thing I see is this kid with <laughs> his, his lunch packed. Not much there, just enough maybe to feed him. I don't know how big the lo loaves were. Uh, maybe he'd packed his lunch to stay all day. I don't know, but uh, probably there wasn't much food there anyway. I think it's interesting that there were five barley loaves. There again, it establishes the time of the year. Uh, the barley was ripe around Passover time, spring of the year, and he had barley, not some other grain, barley loaves, so that helps establish uh, another proof that the Passover is in the springtime, and that's when the year begins, as uh, Moses said. Two small fishes. Now, why five barley loaves? Uh, the kid could have packed four. He could have picked six, uh, but he had five. Well, five in the Bible is the number of grace. And I don't know that that particularly applies here, but it very well could because Christ came to bring grace. He came to bring forgiveness through his body, through his blood, grace to any who would have. And five times grace is a lot of grace. So the number five is used. Uh, and two small fishes. I don't know about the two necessarily, what it might be picked, but uh, he had appointed his disciples and he told them when he did appoint them that he would make them fishers of men. Now, maybe it's a doubling up uh, of what had been done in the past because he had only had a few, really, who had responded to him in the Old Testament and up to this point, hardly any had really responded to him in terms of conversion, <coughs> perhaps none, because disciples weren't even given the Holy Spirit until after Christ was gone in Acts 2. But he made them fishers of men. There had been prophets, there had been priests before, but he was instituting here his plan of salvation in a way that he was going to begin to call a lot of people uh, into the truth. So, uh, fishes is used, and maybe he was doubling down on uh, beginning to preach the gospel through them, and his grace would have to be there as well. Anyway, just a couple of thoughts for, for what they're worth. I don't know that they fit precisely, but uh, you always try to make some sense of what numbers are there and how they were used. <coughs> Anyway, in verse 10, Emmanuel said, Make the men sit down. Now, I think in one of the other Gospels that gives this account, it had them sit down in rows, in order. Uh, not just willy-nilly, wherever they happened to find a rock or a soft place to sit, but he sat them down in rows. Uh, when he brought Israel out of Mitzrayim uh, at Passover time, he did the same thing. Uh, they gathered 
began leaving at midnight, right after the uh, call, or right after the firstborn died, and word got to them from Pharaoh, they left that night and traveled through the night and part of the next day, wherever they happened to live and however far they were from Ramses, and gathered there. But it had been prearranged and preplanned, and they had captains of hundreds and fifties and tens, and they lined up in an organized fashion to go out. Uh, a clue there that sometimes we have to get our thoughts organized in order to get out of sin. Uh, you, you, you can't just say, I'm going to quit sinning and uh, make much progress. You have to have a plan. You have to get somewhat organized. You have to recognize what your lacks, your faults, your needs are, and that requires some thought and organization. So here, well, in Exodus 12, it was at Passover time, they got organized. And here, he organized them very well, even just to sit down to eat. Now, there was much grass in the place. Uh, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. I'm sure there were women and children there as well. I mean, one lad, a, a child, apparently had brought lunch, so uh, just like 600,000 came out of Egypt or Mitzrium, uh, plus women and children, here you had 5,000 men, so he may have been feeding 10,000, 15,000 people easily. And there is a miracle in itself that you could take five small loaves and two fishes and feed a multitude. Even as Christ's sacrifice and him being God made man and his death could ultimately save millions and billions of people. So the miracle here is not just in physical feeding, but the miracle is, as Christ will explain later, for what his body and his blood can do for many, many, many people. That's, that's the lesson. He wasn't just being uh, a benefactor. He wasn't just being nice and and uh, establishing a welfare program here. He had a very, very important point to make. And his teaching right after this shows that. <clears throat> anyway, in verse 11, Emmanuel took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed the disciples, and the disciples to them that were set down. Um, there's another reason for being organized. Uh, the disciples were going to pass out the bread and the fish, and if they had just been sitting anywhere they wanted to sit, they couldn't have walked between the rows, and it would have been very, very difficult to pass out food uh, to people without any rows. So organization is important. It's more efficient. And our march out of sin needs to be efficient and organized as well. So... They began to pass it out, and likewise of the fishes, as much as they would. And when they were filled, 10, 15,000 people probably at least, and five little loaves and two little fishes, and it fed them all, and there was a lot left over. Verse 12, when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. 
That is a very, very important concept there. Uh, let's skip ahead to verse 39 for a moment where he's doing his teaching. I'll just break into the thought here. We'll get to it later. It says, This is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. So, here he is giving a parable. He's giving an example, a teaching tool of the resurrections, which he explains later on in, in the context, verse 39, and being part of it. Uh, his body was the bread of life, and is the bread of life. And, of course, he refers to his word as his bread as well. Well, he and his word are, in that sense, one and the same. And he tells us in Luke 4.4 4, and in Matthew 4.4 4, that we are to live by every word of God. So, Christ's words were not to fall to the ground. Interesting that in 1 Samuel 3.9, uh, Christ had established the lad Samuel through Eli, and uh, God showed that he was with Samuel, in that as Samuel began to teach, uh, God let none of his words fall to the ground. In other words, Israel became very aware that God was using Samuel by the words that he spoke. And God didn't let those words be wasted. He wanted Israel to hear what Samuel had to say. That's in 1 Samuel 3, 9. So, not letting it fall to the ground, using every word, <coughs> gathering the scraps here, <coughs> lose nothing. And it refers to Christ's ministry and the plan of salvation, and that even with his disciples, he said he'd lost none except the one that had been planned to be lost, Judas. Anyway, in verse 13, he says, Therefore they gathered them together and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. doesn't mention the fishes there. Uh, fragments of the barley loaves. Maybe they didn't, Maybe there were no fish scraps left, but the bread was. Now, the disciples were the fishers of men, but the emphasis here is on Christ himself, who was the bread of life. And he is the one that can save not only the majority, but the fragments of mankind through his body and blood as the bread of life. Now, why twelve baskets? Why not eleven baskets or fourteen baskets? that were left over. Well, Romans 11.26 says that all Israel shall be saved. So here he's talking about his plan of salvation that is brought forth through his body, uh, including the, the flesh and the, the wine, the, bl the blood. Uh, does this mean then that, there's, that his sacrifice, his body and blood, is sufficient to cover all twelve tribes? I would think that, that would apply uh, based on all Israel being saved there in Romans 11. So he's saying, not just a few, but when everyone has eaten, there's enough left over uh, for all Israel. I don't know whether there's some application to the Gentiles there or not. Uh, it wasn't whole loaves that were left, but fragments left over. And we know from other scriptures that his his salvation or his body is sufficient, his death.
for all mankind, not just Israel, but it was to go to Israel first, then to the Gentiles. Verse 14, Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Emmanuel did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet that should come to the world. That prophet they understood from the Old Testament Scriptures, uh, Psalm 23, Isaiah 53, uh, uh, many, many Scriptures in the Old Testament referring to Christ and Him coming to the earth. So this is that prophet that the Old Testament spoke of, that all the prophets uh, were a type of in that sense. Now, when Emmanuel therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. Uh, interesting, the leaders of the Jews sought to kill him, and some of their followers sought to kill him as well. And here, after this great miracle, some of them wanted to make him a king. And he didn't come to this earth at that time to become king. He's coming back to be king of kings and lord of lords. But he was not to be king of Israel at that time. Uh, he wasn't ready to overthrow the Roman Empire <laughs> and set up the kingdom of God on earth. So if the kingdom wasn't coming, why be king? So they were going to take him by force. They were going to grab him and lay hands on him and make him their king. Now, that's not the way it's going to be done. So he departed and went alone. And verse 16, and when even was now come, his disciples went down to the sea. So he separated from them. He went up on a mountain. Uh, there are other scriptures that indicate that sometimes he needed to get away from the pressure, away from the multitudes, and find a place to pray. Uh, because he had people after him night and day, and, and even sometimes he needed to get away from the disciples. Uh, because he had to keep his relationship with God right. So that's something we all need to think about, is we need to make time to get away from all the pressures of life and all the pressures that, that we all go through and make sure we have time for just us and God. And sometimes that's difficult to do, especially if you've got, you know, you're working maybe and you're taking care of a household and and doing all the things to keep up house and home and car and body and clothes and um, meals and, you know, just life in general. And then if you have the pressure of the things that Christ had with his disciples and the multitude, uh, it was imperative that he get away. <laughs> so he went up on a mountain, probably told the disciples, scram, I'm going away, uh, I'll, I'll see you later or something like that. I need to get away. So uh, he went up on the mountain Verse 16, and when even was now come, his disciples went down to the sea. So maybe they stuck around there. Maybe the crowd was there for a while, but Christ somehow slipped away and, and uh, was off by himself. Anyway, they entered a ship and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was now dark, and uh, Emmanuel was not come to them. So he told them probably that he was going to go up on the mountain, needed some time alone. But he didn't give them timing, so it may be that they just simply waited around till dark, and uh, since he didn't join them, uh, maybe he had said at some point they were going to go over to Capernaum, and they decided to go on. Anyway, the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew, so when they had rowed about 
five and twenty or thirty furlongs, they see Emmanuel walking on the sea and drawing near to the ship, and they were afraid. Well, I would have been too. <laughs> At that point in the dark, they probably didn't know who he was. They could just see a shadow coming, and it probably scared them uh, half to death. If you're out on the ocean and you see something strange coming across the water, uh, it makes you think. I just just recalled in, in saying that we were out fishing one time in Alaska in, in the Cook Inlet, and we were in a little boat, wasn't very long, maybe a 16, 18 foot skiff that they used for fishing there, and uh, one of those killer whales breached, came right out of the water about, I don't know, seemed like it's 20 feet, it might have been 100 feet, I don't know, it wasn't very far from the boat anyway, uh, might have been 100 yards, it seemed like he was right there. I mean, you're just sitting there, uh, and this was night, and it might have looked like a man, and there's no telling what they thought. Anyway, he said to them, it is, it is I, be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship. I'll bet it was very willingly, after he'd scared them that badly, and, oh, it's you, come on in, we need you here. <laughs> uh, we're afraid. He said, it is I, be not afraid. There's a big lesson there. If we can get close to Christ, we don't need to be afraid. He tells us here in the end time to be of good courage. He says, fear not. And uh, to work. There's one other thing that doesn't come to mind. Prophecies. The two of them are fear not and uh be of good courage. Now, he won't be walking across the sea to us, but for his disciples, that was good advice. And it's advice he gives us here in the end time, that we need to be close to him, we need to expect his help, we need to expect deliverance. Uh, there was a wind there. They were paddling against it and getting almost nowhere. And here he comes walking across the wild sea, and he could calm the waters. So, uh, he can calm our waters too. And we need to be very, very aware of that because as humans, it's easy to fear. When we see all the horror that's being unleashed on this world and is going to get worse and worse and worse, uh, we need not fear but trust Christ to take care of us. And that has to be a very real living faith. It can't just be a hope against hope. It has to be something we truly believe in and therefore are strengthened by it. And ask him to be with us, even as they ask. Come in here, get in the boat, be with us. Uh, don't, don't keep walking out there. We need you here. And that's the prayer we need to be praying ourselves, is that Christ come and be with us. He even tells us there in Zechariah 2, he's going to come and dwell with us here in the end time and bring his blessings once again. So he'll be there. Don't be afraid. People are getting alarmed. I've, I've read a report about incredible increase uh, in volcanic and earthquake activity in the last month. Reminds you of Matthew 24 and... Uh, earthquakes in different places. So the time is drawing near, and 
men are going to begin to fear. But we should not fear because God will be with us if we're with Him. Anyway, uh, verse 22, The day following, when the people which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was none other boat there, save that one wherein his disciples were entered, and Emmanuel went not with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples were gone away alone. Well, there was only one boat here, and he didn't get in. Where is he? Howbeit there came other boats from Tiberias near to the place where they did eat bread, after that the Eternal had given thanks. Now when the people therefore saw that Emmanuel was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum seeking for Emmanuel. <coughs> it had been said the day before, and now they were seeking him. Where did he go? I want to find him. Well, isn't that what he tells us to do? Seek him, search for him, turn with our whole hearts, look for him, find him. There's a lot being said here. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? <laughs> How did There was only one boat. How did you get over here? Emmanuel answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the miracles, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. <laughs> Are we ever in it for ourselves? Are we, do we want what we want? It, being fed was more important, he said to them, than even the miracles that he did. We like free lunch. Then he says, labor not for the food which perishes, but for that food which endures to eter everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give to you, for him has God the Father sealed. That is, he had approved him, he had set him aside, uh, put his stamp on him to do what he was there doing and what he would do. So he's using the meal <clears throat> that he'd given them yesterday to begin to teach them a spiritual point. No. You ate yesterday, you ate till you were plum full, stuffed, on free lunch, and now you're hungry again and you're looking me up. In other words, it doesn't matter how much you eat, you still get hungry again pretty quick, don't you, physically? Sometimes we eat and we think, I couldn't, I but I can't eat for a week, but about four, five, six hours, you're ready to eat again. That meat perishes. So he's saying you've got, to, you've got to get something that's everlasting, something that will fill you up and keep you full. Verse 28, Then said they to him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? So he's saying, Well, you need to do the works of God, not just feed your faces. Well, what do we do? So Emmanuel answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe honor in Him whom He has sent. What is the work of God? <clears throat> well, that which Herbert Armstrong says we preach the gospel of the world, uh, gospel of the kingdom around the world, what was it? That was try to convince people who the real Christ is. You have a so-called Christian world who does not know the true Christ. 
They worship they know not what. They have his name, but they don't know what he taught. They don't have his word. They don't have the, the food, the meat uh, that comes from him. <clears throat> so he says, this is the work of God, that you believe him whom he has sent. Isn't that the goal and the purpose that John is is pushing right here? He keeps putting the slant to his gospel that Christ is the Son of God, the only Son of God. Uh, some of the others don't push that quite in the same way that John does. Of course, when you have four authors, you're going to have a different editorial approach, different slant. <coughs> but this is what John chose and he cut straight to the heart of the matter, didn't he? As Christ says here. Uh, getting people to believe who Christ is. And that is really what this whole chapter is about. And we'll see in more detail that a little later on. And some of his own disciples that were there with him during this turned against him. <clears throat> because they didn't believe who he was. They've been following him, but they didn't believe who he was. We'll see that. Anyway, verse 30, they said therefore to him, What sign show you then that we may see and believe you? What do you work? Well, he's trying to tell them, I am the bread of life. He'll emphasize that as he goes. But what are you going to do? Well, he'd already been doing miracles. Then he fed them all they could eat. And then he got across the sea somehow without a boat. And they were wondering about that. But they still weren't convinced of who he was. What, what are you going to show us? Are people hard-headed or what? Verse 31, Our fathers did eat manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. He says, well, you know, Moses and our forefathers had a sign. Gave them manna. <laughs> what had Christ just done? Gave them bread and fish. In the, de in the desert, it had been uh, manna and quail. But he still fed them. And, and they're forgetting that. And they're trying to remember ancient history. Well, what are you going to do? Well, what did I just do? <laughs> People are kind of thick sometimes. Then Emmanuel said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. So, they were just physically sustained. Here he's giving them spiritual sustenance, and they don't recognize what it is. The Old Covenant did not guarantee salvation, didn't even offer it. The New Covenant does. So, Physical sustenance is all he gave them in the Old Testament. And they rebelled about the water, and his water is the word, uh, and the wine made from water is his blood. That wasn't offered to them. And even they rebelled against Moses and God in the wilderness, and they all died. So that wasn't bread that lasted. So he's trying to give them the idea, you know, you can look back to Moses all you want, but that wasn't the answer. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He says, this is what that I fed you yesterday is all about. 
It represents me, him, himself, who came here to give life through bread. Physical bread sustains our physical life, but spiritual bread, our spiritual life. So he's making a transition. He gives life to the world, that is, to those who accept. Now, didn't he say, this is the work of God up there, that you believe on him whom he has sent? So you got to believe him. Otherwise, it doesn't give you life. It has to be mixed with faith and belief in those that receive. Then said they to him, Lord, evermore, give us this bread. <coughs> they said, yeah, that's, yeah, we want that. How many of them continue to follow him as he goes on through this? It sounded good. But hearers only and not doers don't do much good. And Emmanuel said to them, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believes on me shall never thirst. So only he can fill the spiritual void and vacancy that is in human minds and the human heart. All human beings believe on some level that there is something beyond this life. It doesn't matter which religion you go to, be it Muslims or Buddhists or Christians or Shintoists or wherever you go around the world, you'll find people believe in some kind of an afterlife. Uh, so they wanted that spiritual void to be filled. People go to all kinds of extremes to try to construct religions to answer that longing, that need, because none of us want to die, do we? We'd like to live forever. Even the scientists are trying to find a way to give us a fountain of youth and make us live forever. And there's only one way. He's, Christ is the door. He's the way to life. And without Him, you can't get there. I don't care how smart a scientist you are. In fact, he even offers salvation first to the weak and the base, not to the scientists. <coughs> I'm the bread of life, and you, I'm the only one that can answer, he says, that void, that spiritual need within you. But I said to you that you also have seen me and believe not. So here I am, giving you the answers, and you don't believe me. No matter what I do, whether it's miracles, whether it's feeding you, which was a miracle in itself, uh, I tell you, and you won't believe my words either. Verse 37, All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. He's not a Christ, a God of hate, of animosity, uh, trying to get you if you don't do everything you're supposed to do. A lot of people in religion preach a, a hellfire and damnation, and they teach, really, that God the Father and Christ Himself, really, are uh, fighting a losing battle, and Satan's winning, and everybody's going to hell. That's not the way God is, not the way Christ is, it's not the way He thinks. He's very, very positive. 
you and I have trouble being positive. We have trouble having faith and trust and belief in salvation. But he says, his attitude is, if anybody comes to me, I will no wise cast him out. If he comes truly seeking and searching and willing to change and grow and do what God says, he's not going to be cast out. The only way we'll be cast out is if we ourselves turn from him. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. He was here to save us. He sent his only begotten son that the world might have life, not to die. So his will is that you and I be in his kingdom. That's his will. That's his purpose. And he is not going to fail. All Israel will be saved. Not every individual, but most. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, but it won't be a great number of people. He is a resounding success. And that's the way he thinks. And we need to be positive, too. I don't know whether Paul was that positive all through his life, but he, he wound up positive toward the end and said, I've fought the good fight. I've, I've done this. I've gotten it done. And I know that my reward is there for me because I have persevered. Verse 39, And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he has given me, I should lose nothing, but shall raise it up again at the last day. <coughs> Here he's not speaking of his return uh, to marry his bride at the end of this age. That's only 144,000, as Romans 14, I mean Romans, Revelation 14, 14, 7 clearly shows. Those are the first fruits. That is the number of first fruits in the first resurrection. And he says the rest of the dead there in Revelation 20 lived not till a thousand years were over. So when he says, I'll raise it up again at the last day, he's speaking of the last great day or the great last great day of the feast. That's when he will raise up all these people. Uh, he's not converting everybody now. Many are called and few are chosen. And, and the, the will of the Father and the Son is that nothing would be lost. And that's the time of the general resurrection, the last great day, when most everybody will have their chance. And this is the will of him that sent me, verse 40, that everyone which sees the Son and believes on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So they'll come up, they'll have opportunity to uh, see him, because he'll be on the earth at that time and to believe him, and to obey him during the, the great white throne judgment. He can call you today, but you don't see him, do you? Uh, it's a spiritual thing. But then they'll be able to see him. Verse 41, The Jews then murmured at him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. Now, they took great exception to that. They said, Is not this... Emmanuel, or Jesus, they said, the son of Joseph, Joseph, whose father and mother we know. How is it then that he says, I came down from heaven? That was hard for them to grasp. They'd, they'd seen him. They knew where he grew up and who his parents were. <coughs> what do you mean? I've, I've got a guy that's been writing me recently that tells me he is the Lamb of God. 
Uh, he is the man-child to be born here at the end time. And he's got a really weird approach about everything being mirrors and everything said in reverse. And where is the simplicity that is in Christ? I can't even begin to understand where he's coming from. But he is not the Lamb of God and he is not the man-child. I'll guarantee you that. He wouldn't come the way he is. But boy, can we delude ourselves. So anyway, uh, they had trouble believing who he was too. We saw him growing up. Verse 43, Emmanuel therefore answered and said to them, Murmur not among yourselves. This is something that uh, goes all the way back to Adam and Eve and, <laughs> and forward forever. Mankind has always murmured among themselves. They did it to, to God in the Garden of Eden. They murmured against Noah. They murmured against Moses, they murmured against all the prophets, and they murmured against Christ himself. Verse 44, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at that last day. Or at the last day, again speaking of the last great day uh, at the end of the millennium. That's when God will draw them. So he, he says... Murmur not among yourselves. Uh, he, he's actually telling them, you can't come to me right now. They couldn't. He says, no man can come except the Father called them. And he wasn't doing a general calling at that time. He called twelve disciples, that's all. And then he had some who came along and followed with him. And a calling didn't really begin until the Holy Spirit came on Acts 2, or in Acts 2, at the time of Acts 2. And then 5,000 were called in one day and 3,000 in one day, and he began to call a New Testament church. But he's, saying, he's telling these people, you can't come to me except the Spirit of the Father draw you, and that'll be at the last day. That's when most of them would be called. <laughs> it wasn't his purpose to come and save the world when he came, and when he comes this next time, it will not be to save the world, it will be to claim his bride and then he will save or teach those who survive the Holocaust into the millennium and then raise up the rest at the last great day. Then it's when they'll be called, an order of resurrection. Verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Well, that's the last great day, no time before that. Every man, therefore, that has heard and has learned of the Father comes to me. So he says, it doesn't matter whether it's now, millennium, great white throne judgment. You're not going to come until you learn from the Father to come to me. He is the door. He's the only way. Not that any man has seen the Father, save he which is of God. He has seen the Father. So he says, I'm the only one. Truly, truly, I say to you, he that believes on me has everlasting life. I am that bread of life. So he says, you've got to eat of me. You've got to partake of me. You've got to believe me and do what I say, uh, because he is the only one that can give us life. God has conveyed to him judgment. He's conveyed to him 
the final judgment on you and me. And the Father then will uh, accept whatever Christ brings to them, say, this, this is my bride, Father. I've got 144,000 now. These are the names. Let's get the crowns ready. Uh, and his Father will say, yes, son, we're in total agreement, total accord here. And that is true throughout the order of resurrections. You have to come through Christ. So then he reiterates in verse 49, Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. Now he obviously is speaking of eternal life here, not physical, because they were all going to die physically and did. I am the living bread which comes down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. So his first, or that coming as a human being, he'd been to the earth many, many times in the past uh, when he re- came to the plains of Mamre with Abraham and when he spoke to Moses. And I mean, he was here many, many times. But here he came evidenced in the flesh to die that we might be saved. <laughs> and with Passover coming, that's why we're going through this in detail to review and implant freshly in our minds uh, what this Passover means to us. So we gave it for the life of the world. The Jews, therefore, strove among them, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? <laughs> We're not cannibals, uh, and there's too many of us. Uh, we'd, he'd, he'd just be a small appetizer. You know, what, what's this guy talking about? Then Emmanuel said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, they didn't grasp this, obviously, and then they conspired to kill him, and his flesh was torn apart and his blood was poured on the ground and unless they imbibe of that on a spiritual level they can't be in the kingdom of God and all of these people will come up in the great white throne judgment and there they will see him that's going to be quite a shock I think (laughs) I think he will make himself recognizable you know oh that's the guy we killed (laughs) he's still around Anyway, he says, I'll raise him up at the last day. <clears throat> For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And I think there he's including those who are the bride, because he will raise, we, we eat and drink of his blood, and the last day could, in, could mean not only the last great day for these, these people, but it could be the last day of judgment for all of us. Uh, I mean, there's a judgment that comes before he, claims his bride, there's another judgment comes at the end of the millennium and another one then at the end of the great white throne judgment. So last day for each of us in our order is also implied here, although when he was talking strictly to them, uh, they weren't going to eat of him and drink of him really until the last great day. But we, we eat and drink of him now. So the last day for us in the grave will be the day of the resurrection. Uh, For my flesh, verse 55, is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eats my flesh and drinks my blood dwells in me, and I in him. 
There's why Passover is such a very serious and solemn ceremony, because we do physically partake of unleavened bread and wine as a type of his own death and the remembrance of his death for us. As the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eats me, even he shall live by me. And he was about to offer a new covenant with these spiritual conditions involved shortly after this. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eats of this bread shall live forever. So, eternal life is being offered here. These things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. <clears throat> Many therefore of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? This isn't the twelve, but others who were disciples or followers had been following him all along. Said, you know, this guy's been a good teacher, and I've seen a lot of miracles, and he's fed us, but what does this mean? He can give us eternal life if we won't die. You know, that, that would be hard for a carnal human being to accept. When Emmanuel knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said to them, Does this offend you, that I'm the bread of life, that I'm coming to offer salvation? What an if you shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before. You haven't been impressed so far. What if you see me actually rise from the earth and go back up into the heavens? Then are you going to believe I came down from the heavens? It is the spirit that quickens. The flesh profits nothing. No, we're going to die. We only have 60, 70, 80, 90 years on this earth and we die. That's it. The flesh doesn't profit us anything. You know, we all have experiences in our lives. We have places we've been, things we've enjoyed, our mates, our families, many, many things we've enjoyed on this earth. And you have a memory that no one else has. <laughs> no one has experienced exactly the same things you have and in the way that you have. Uh, you know what? When you die, that's just gone. It's erased. It's not there anymore. No one can think the thoughts that you thought. No one can remember the experiences that you remember. Uh, they'll just be gone when you're gone. When the lights go out and the movie's over, <laughs> you know. We are very, very human. So the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. They can give you something that goes beyond this life and its memories. But there are some of you that believe not. For Emmanuel knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. So there were a lot of people who were following him and some of them would not believe him, and will be part of the ones who betrayed him. And of course, Judas especially, or specifically, was the one who turned him in to the Romans, or to the Jews and the Romans. And he said, Therefore said I to you, that no man can come to me except it were given to him of my father. 
If God doesn't open your mind, you can't see, you can't accept, you can't understand what I'm talking about. You just won't get it. From that time, many of the disciples went back and walked no more with him. He was the Christ. He explained. He did miracles. He did all kinds of things. And when he said, I came down from the Father in heaven to offer you eternal life, they couldn't handle that. This guy's nuts. He's crazy. (laughs) Uh, Let's go back and read the Old Testament and talk about Moses and Abraham. They were the ones that they looked to, not to Christ. Then said Emmanuel to the twelve, Will you also go away? Everybody's gone but you. How about you? Do you believe me? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You know, I think you and I have thought that many times since we were called into God's truth. I know I've thought it and said it. If I ever left God's church, I'm done with religion. If this isn't it, there ain't none. (laughs) You know? There's nowhere else to go. Am I going to become a Lutheran or a Buddhist? No. No, I'm going to become a fisherman and a hunter and something else. I'm, I'm done with religion. Forget it. If this isn't it, there is none. If Christ wasn't it, there is none. Well, where are you going to go? <clears throat> what about the things that we've learned here in these last years? Where else are you going to get them? Where, where else can you learn them? There's, there's not a place. We believe and are sure that you are that Christ, the Son of the living God. So, Peter was speaking for all of them and saying, we believe you. Emmanuel answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is the devil? So he says, You may say that, but out of the twelve of you there is one whose influence is of the devil, not of me. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. He didn't tell them at that time who it was, of course. He just says, One of you is. And they didn't know until... Judas Judas actually uh, betrayed him. Even at that last Passover, they didn't understand who it was and what he would do until Christ told him to leave. And then they thought he was just going to go out and buy some provisions. And it wasn't until he came back to the garden with those that he betrayed him to that they understood who it was. Sometimes it's hard to determine who's the wheat and who's the tares. Even the disciples themselves didn't know it was who it was through all this time that would betray him. So we're leading up to the Passover. It's the next service we'll have on Wednesday evening. So maybe this is a very good place to uh, conclude today that we better believe him. We better take of that bread and that wine Passover evening having examined ourselves, being sure we're not hypocritical, but that we truly do believe with all our heart that He is the Son of God and that He will bring us salvation.